Praise the Lord. We worship a holy God, don't we? We worship a holy God, don't we? That's better. We also worship an all-powerful God. We're going to hear a little bit more about that from God's Word today. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 8. We will get to there in a few minutes. But for some of you that are new to the church and some of you that are visiting here today, I just want to give you just a brief context for the message today. As a result of God's divine providence, 36 years ago last month, Christian Family Fellowship was established in Santa Rosa, California. At that time, it was the only Reformed Baptist church in this city. And by God's divine providence, the church continued to grow, and it moved to this location 34 years ago. And then, 10 years later, again, according to God's divine providence, he called myself and my wife Patty to come here and go on staff at this church. Then, once again, according to God's divine providence, 24 years ago this month, the founding pastor was disqualified due to moral failure. But God had a plan for Christian Family Fellowship. And by His divine providence, the associate pastor, myself, became the lead pastor. And the work of rebuilding the church began, slowly at first, But God supplied what was needed over and over and over again. Thirteen years ago, God brought Pastor Don and Wendy to our church so that he could go on staff and come alongside. A few years ago, God brought Eric and Molly Moody to our church so Eric could become an elder here. And most recently, he brought Rob and Christy so that Rob could become a pastor on staff here. Then six years ago, according to God's divine providence, six years ago, next month, the Tubbs fire swept through this area, destroying over 1,300 homes around us and many other buildings and businesses as well. The fire burned to within 300 feet of this building. Yet God spared our building And we became a beacon, a shining light of God's love to our neighbors who were affected. And today, we have more individuals from the neighborhood attending our church than we did before the fire. That's God's providence. That's God's work. And in today's message, we're going to focus on God's sovereignty and His providence over all things. And upon his promise that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Before we look at our text, let me ask you a few questions and then show you the answers from the very word of God. One of those questions I already asked. Is our God all-powerful? Is our God all-knowing? Is our God in control of all things at all times? 
And does our God have a divine plan or purpose? Well, I agree with you, but let's hear what God's Word says. I just want to mention to you a few passages from our Bible that answer these questions. Uh, There are so many, we could spend all day referencing them, but here's a few. Starting with Job 42.2, where Job states, I know that you, that is God, can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then we read in Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, I am God, this is God speaking, by the way, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my cause shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Praise the Lord. And then in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, we read these words. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. Well, lest you think it's only the Old Testament that states this, here's a few verses from the New Testament as well. Ephesians 1.11. Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And in the context there, it's referring to God. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Note that, not according to necessarily our will, or our wishes, or our wants, but according to His divine will. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For by Him, that is by Christ, all things were created, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. What a glorious statement of the power of our God. All things created, all things held together by him. And then 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So let me ask you again, is our God all-powerful? Is our God all-knowing? Is our God in control of all things? Does our God have a divine plan for his people, for his church? Absolutely, no doubt about it. The Westminster Confession of Faith defines God's providence in this way. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by His most wise and holy providence according to His infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Amen? That is a powerful statement. 
that God is the one who is in control of all things. One of my favorite teachers, Dr. R.C. Sproul, speaks on the doctrine of providence in this way. This is written in his systematic theology. He writes, the central point of the doctrine of providence is the stress on God's governance of the universe. He rules over his creation with absolute sovereignty and authority. He governs everything that comes to pass from the greatest to the least. Nothing ever happens beyond the scope of his sovereign providential rule. I don't think it can be more clear. It is with this foundational understanding of the sovereignty and providence of God that we can then approach our text for today, which is Romans 8.28. So if you're able, could you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read verses 28 through 30. This is God's word to us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. If you were to read through Romans chapter 8, you would find that in this chapter, it teaches that God is sovereign in both suffering and salvation. Romans 8, 16 and 17 really set the, the theme For this chapter, let me read that. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, if we stop right there, we'd all go, Oh, yes, what a joy. But then he adds, Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The children of God are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified with Him. So our suffering is integral as part of God's plan on our way to glory. We will all suffer in this life in one way or another, some more than others but we will all suffer. It's part of the curse of sin, of living in a fallen world. We will suffer. But that suffering is part of God's plan. In verse 18, he comforts us by telling us that our suffering, as bad as they might be, cannot even be compared with the glory that is yet to be revealed. Look at verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy or not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And as we know, Paul who wrote this, he knew a little bit about suffering. Amen? 
And he says, it's nothing compared to the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. Praise the Lord. So from verse 19 to verse 30, Paul writes on this connection between suffering and glory. I just want to give you the context here for our verse, because our verse is often lifted out of the context. And I just want to give you the context here. So first, in verses 19 to 22, he mentions that creation itself longs for deliverance from its body, excuse me, its bondage to corruption. It longs to be delivered when Christ returns. Second, verses 23 to 25, believers, we groan inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies, as we wait to receive our glorified bodies, as we struggle against the trials of living in these mortal bodies. Third, in verses 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit, we're told the Holy Spirit helps believers in our weaknesses, even interceding for us according to the will of God. Verse 28, those who love God, our sovereign Lord, promises to cause all things to work together for our good. And then in verses 28 through 30, he also assures believers of God's providence in salvation. His saving providence carries them from foreknowledge to predestination to effectual calling, justification, and glory. Praise the Lord. Amen? So this is the context for our text, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is one of the most memorized and oft-quoted verses in the Bible. So I want to take a few minutes to unpack, to look closely and carefully at what this verse tells us. Let me read it again. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul begins here with a powerful statement. We know. Not we wish, not we hope, we know. What does Paul base this upon? Well, at least two things. First, his own experience. Paul had experienced great trials, tribulations, and hardships in his service for Christ. And in each and every circumstance, God had brought good out of it. A couple of examples of this are found in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 14, we read that the Jews opposed to Paul preaching the gospel persuaded the crowds in Lystra to stone Paul to death. They drug his body out of the city and left it. But God preserved his life and used this episode to further his credibility and to advance the gospel there. I mean, when he gets up and goes back into the city and keeps doing what he was doing, that's a good thing. Amen? Later in chapter 16, Paul and Silas are arrested, beaten, and thrown into prison, resulting 
in God, causing an earthquake, setting them free, and leading to the conversion of the chief jailer and his entire household. God brings good out of evil. The examples in Paul's life go on and on and on of God causing all sorts of difficult circumstances to work together for good. Pastor Rob mentioned that this morning as we were looking at the prison epistles. Would those epistles that are so vital to our understanding, would they have even been written had Paul not been falsely accused, arrested, and sent to prison in Rome? God worked that together for good. Second, Paul can say we know this to be true based on all of the accounts of the, of the Old Testament of God working this way. It is recorded for us in Scripture how God caused trials and tribulations to abound and worked those circumstances together for good and for His glory. As Pastor Don has been preaching through Genesis, we have seen this over and over and over again, starting with Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and of course, Joseph. Last Sunday, he preached a glorious sermon about this very truth, that God caused all things in the life of Joseph to work together for good. Only a holy God can do that. I mean, think about it. The plot by his brothers to kill him. And then his being sold into slavery. And then his being falsely accused and falsely imprisoned. All things that worked together for good. All things that worked together to accomplish God's purpose. All things that work together to allow him to save his family and his countrymen from the famine and preserve a people for God and the lineage of the future Messiah, Jesus. We see this same pattern continue throughout the Old Testament with Moses, Joshua, Samson, David, Daniel, and so many others. So Paul, knowing that God has done this time after time after time, is able to write with absolute confidence, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The second thing I want you to see in this verse is that this promise only applies to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It's not a blanket promise to all human beings. The phrase, those who love God here, is emphatic in the Greek. And it should be prominent in our own minds. This promise is specific. It's not universal. It's a promise to believers, to those God has called out of the darkness, to those upon whom he has set his redeeming love. Because we would not love him unless he first loved us. Amen? That's what John writes in 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. So God's love for his chosen people was 
demonstrated graphically by sending his only begotten son to this planet to save the people whom God loved. Talk about suffering unjust circumstances. The holy, righteous Son of God, who is himself God, became a human being, lived in this sin-filled world among sin-filled people in perfect obedience to God. He lived a perfectly sinless life, yet he was persecuted. He was mocked. He was opposed. He was arrested. He was beaten. And he was executed by crucifixion and buried in a borrowed tomb. Why? Because of God's love for those he would save. Jesus died upon that cross as we celebrated earlier in the Lord's Supper. As our sin bearer. As the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, as our propitiatory sacrifice, as our Redeemer. And he uttered those words on the cross, it is finished. Amen? So God caused the worst evil ever perpetrated in the history of the human race to work together for good to those who love God because he first loved us. This is for those that he has called to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are those to whom the promise is given, all who have trusted in Christ for salvation. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things? All things. All things means all things. As we've already seen in countless examples in Scripture as well as in our own lives. As I said earlier, there is much suffering in this sin-filled world. Now listen to me. This verse does not teach us that sickness, suffering, pain and persecution, loss or grief are good in themselves. On the contrary, these things are evil and they are the result of sin. But God. This text teaches us that God uses even these things to affect good for his chosen people. In other words, God brings good out of evil. He does not call evil things good, and neither should we. But in his divine power and sovereign authority, he is able to bring ultimate good to us no matter what our circumstances. All things that have ever happened to us or could possibly ever happen to us are soul controlled by God. That the end result is inevitably and utterly for our good. Whether we can see it or not. And most times it's not. 
until perhaps years later, we look back and realize, oh, I wouldn't be where I am today if it hadn't been for those circumstances. And God used them for my good. And then this phrase, work together for good. So what is the good that God is wanting to accomplish? Well, some would say that God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That good here is being successful, admired, happy, and healthy. Is that the good that God intends? No. The good that God intends is so much greater. And he tells us in the very next verse what his ultimate good is for all those he loves and calls according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, listen, to be conformed to the image of his son. There's the greatest possible good that exists in the universe. This is what the good is, to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, his son. In other words, to be made like Jesus Christ. It is impossible to think of a higher good than to be like Jesus. Amen? And understanding this helps us to see how God can use sickness, suffering, persecution, trials, tribulations, loss, and grief to accomplish His ultimate purpose in our lives, our becoming more like Jesus. Jesus' half-brother James wrote of this very thing in his letter. Let me remind you of that. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James writes this. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, there's that, you know, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be what? perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, there's only one human being that's ever lived that fits that description, right? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We could stop at perfect, right? And so James is writing about the same goal that God has for you and I, that we would become more and more and more and more like Christ, that we would be perfectly conformed to Christ. And we call this ongoing work of God sanctification, which is becoming outwardly more and more what we already are inwardly. Our God is causing all things to work together for our good, for our outward sanctification, for us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. This is the purpose behind God's plan for our lives. And ultimately, it's so that He might be glorified. Because only He can do this. Amen? Only He can do this. This is not something we can do ourselves. It's only something that He can do. So ultimately, His purpose is that He might be glorified. All resounds to the praise of His glory.
So I want to say to you this morning that I believe the truths found in this verse should completely change our perspective when we encounter difficult circumstances, when we encounter what we consider to be trials or tribulations, when we are forced to face the unexpected, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We need to remember that so that we can put our faith and trust in Him, not in our own understanding. So let us continue to trust in the purpose that God has planned for us. Let us be confident in the love of God for us and in the good that He will accomplish in our lives and in His church. God is sovereign. God is in control. And listen to me. All that God has planned for us will come to pass. We know this. Amen? We know this. Remember these words spoken by God to His chosen people when they were going into exile. His people Israel. God spoke these words. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The same could be said of God's chosen people today. God has a plan for our good and for His glory. And as Job said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or as God told Isaiah, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I will do it. Brothers and sisters, you can take that to the bank. You can be absolutely confident in a God who loves you and has a plan for you and for me and for our church. We can trust the Lord, our God, to love those he has called and to cause all things to work together for their good. So we should respond with thanksgiving, with praise and worship to him for his goodness and his grace in revealing these truths to us. And giving us the confidence to trust in Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank